Man, please turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Ooh, I know, Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> Today we're going to read together the first of seven letters to specific churches in the region of what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, the letters all have a similar flow. Okay, We're going to be doing this over the next several weeks, so you're going to notice this. In fact, William Hendrickson, he's one of the commentators that I, that I like to read. He wrote the Baker New Testament Commentary. Or he was one of the guys that wrote it. But he points out each letter, whether it's a shorter letter or a longer letter, uh, it, it has a structure that consists of seven different elements, which there's that number again, right? Which are, as he puts it, the address to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor, an aspect of the Lord's appearance to John at Patmos, an evaluation of the spiritual health of the individual church, words of praise or reproof, words of exhortation, promises to the overcomer, and then a command to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven things are present in each of these letters. And it occurred to me too late that I should have included these in your notes, but I did not. And so um, maybe next week, we'll see. But um, I'm going to try to restate this so that you'll be able to include it later. But it's pretty neat when you consider this is clearly not an accident. All right, seven letters, each letter with seven points. Now, what does that tell us about the author of this letter? He likes the number seven. Thank you. <laughs> um, not the one that wrote it down, but the, the person who spoke the words being written. Okay? The number seven symbolizes perfection in what Bible nerds call apocalyptic literature, okay, which is what the book of Revelation is. Um, and for, for him, for, for this author to choose seven particular churches to address and have seven distinct parts of each letter points to his perfection. Now, it's also important for us to recognize who is the, uh, the audience to whom the words are written. Because in each case, we're looking at one of the seven churches in, in, in Asia Minor. But again, the repetition of the number seven hints that there's something perfect about the choice of which churches are addressed. Now, you will, how do we know that? Well, one reason is there's obviously, uh, there were a lot more than seven churches in Turkey. Okay, after all, Paul wrote letters to at least, at least five other churches that are not mentioned here, okay, that are mentioned in the New Testament. And so, and he went to several other places to preach the gospel. But this is, this is kind of a nice cross-section. You may remember the location of these churches I uh, showed you on a map. Last week, it has kind of a soft oval shape. You know, they're all kind of a similar distance uh, from the one next to it. Uh, and unless we think that none of these other churches needed to be addressed, which would mean they were perfect, and so that's clearly not the case. So the author's choice of, of an audience was intended to convey something that's universal. And we're going to see that in the end of today's passage. Now, you remember why there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? Because it's not filled, right? Because it's full of imperfect people. And if you found a perfect church, should you go there? No, because you would mess it up, right? Okay, so just bear that in mind. All right, so, hey, it's the truth. So, for now, let's open with prayer. I think we especially need to. Um, and then we'll start reading Revelation chapter 2. Father God, I thank you so much for this group of godly believers who are here because they want to know your word better. They want to love on one another. They want to uh, 
uh, respond to the Holy Spirit's work in them. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that we will be good soil. Father, I, I always want, to, want us to be receptive to the seeds that are cast, Father, that we might uh, allow those things to take root and bear fruit in our lives for the sake of your kingdom, God. We pray that, that your holiness, Father, will shine through us and that we will make a difference in the lives of others, God. I pray this morning that every single person here, that we will take something home with us from this message that will, will resonate and will bear fruit in our lives this very week, Father. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we're going to pause there because here we have the first two things that Hendrickson pointed out. We have the church that's being addressed, right? Uh, and then we see an aspect of the divine Christ. And we're going to look at these in reverse order um, though, because the, the one speaking is prominent. Who is speaking? It's, uh, Jesus, sure. It's, it's him who holds seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. So obviously, it, it, it's Christ in his heavenly glorified form. So who is the, specific, uh, the individual that's being addressed here? The angel, right? It's the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, there are multiple ways that we could hypothetically interpret the word angel here. Um, some believe it's referring to a singular pastor in a church, which would make sense linguistically, but not in practice, because the Bible is clear that a church's leadership should be a plurality of male elders, okay? You know, scripturally, the head of every church is Christ. We know that, right? The church itself and every individual congregation should be Christ, uh, and each congregation should be led by more than one man who has been tested and who shows the qualities of a biblical shepherd. And it doesn't seem like the word angel fits a group of elders either because it's in the singular tense. So maybe we can take the word translated angel at face value and understand it to mean messenger, which the word literally means in Greek, okay? Maybe someone specific that the Holy Spirit would send to each individual church, or, or it could possibly even mean an actual heavenly being that's supposed to bring the message to a particular church. So that's, that's four possibilities. I really don't have a particular heavy preference for any of them. Um, I think the point isn't really the angel, so to speak. I think the point is each church itself, because that's who the angel is supposed to convey it to. So um, I'm going to talk about Ephesus now for a moment. Um, you probably remember if you took Dave's class where he talked about the places that, um, that Paul visited, that Ephesus is one of those places he spent a lot of time in. That was a huge city. Okay, now in, until their seaport kind of started filling in with mud a few centuries later, this, this city was a gigantic trade hub. Okay, there was lots of, it was kind of like a, like a modern day Houston, you know, because the, the land routes and the sea routes kind of came together there. And it was, there was a lot of commerce uh, it was also a cultural hub in the sense that, that uh, there were people from many nations, many different nationalities and ethnicities that would converge there on that one place. They would do that for business. And it was a religious hub because the temple of Diana or Artemis was there, which was a huge economic factor for the city of Ephesus. You may remember in Acts that, uh, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and, you know, all the people that were, that were causing this riot and this uproar. 
Now, the temple, the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis that they still have some of there in Ephesus was one of the the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. This thing was enormous. Okay, it was nearly twice the size of a football field, 425 feet long, 225 feet wide. It had 127 columns. Each column was four feet in diameter, so almost 13 feet in circumference, okay? And 60 feet high. Now, I want you to just think about this. This is a feat of engineering that would beyond, it's past the capability of most construction companies today, unless they have cranes. I mean, think about this. Just remember, if you're ever tempted to think that people are smarter today than they used to be, you're wrong, okay? We, we have gotten progressively dumber, and, and it's because we are given so much information that we don't know what to do with. People back then knew how to do things that we can't even fathom. Anyway, big city, generally tolerant of other faiths, at least early on. It's mentioned several times uh, in the New Testament, and, and Paul lived there for a while, so the church there we know probably uh, would have had a really strong foundation to begin with. Now let's consider what the divine Christ said to the angel of this church, starting in verse 2. And while we read through this, I want you all to pay attention uh, to two things. First, there's actually quite a bit of acclamation that Jesus gives to this church. They were doing a lot of things well, okay? And as such, there's there's several things about the believers in Ephesus that Christ, he found worthy of of commending, and that's great, right? But there was also an admonition. There was a warning, that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus because there was a very significant problem in their midst that had not yet been noticed. It had not been addressed by the congregation or by its leaders. So so keep your eyes and your ears open as we read, okay? Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Everything up to this point is very positive, Uh, and we're going to go through each point, but before we do, uh, just bear in mind how Jesus begins this sentence. He says, I know. I mean, of course he does. This is the divine Christ with the the eyes of flame, right? He sees everything, even even what's inside. His his knowledge is perfect. It's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. He can see what's occurring in the hearts and minds of the people in this church. And so so in in the verses that we just read, here's what he sees. And by the way, uh, make sure that you, you skip the right spots, okay? Because if, if if a word is down a little further then skip it in your bulletin insert. Otherwise, you're going to end up scratching out words and rewriting them in, and we don't want that, okay? Just, just try, to, try to keep up with that because it, it's tricky. But I want you to see this. First, he mentions their good works. Now, what does that entail? Or, or what, is, what does that include? You know, James 1.27, you're probably familiar with, it says that religion that God our Father calls pure and faultless is this. There's two things. Do you remember what they are? To help orphans and widows in their distress. To keep oneself what? Unspotted or unstained by the world. That's pretty, pretty in your face, <laughs> right? And it's at its most 
basic level, you know, good works would be the first half of that, right? It's taking care of others, especially people in need. But there, there are many ways that we do that besides just meeting their physical needs. You know, we can, we can teach. We can share the gospel. We can give. We can practice hospitality. We can stand up for the disenfranchised. You know, there, there are many kinds of good works. And I want to touch on something before we go to the next subject, which is the importance of good works in the life of the Christian. Because, guys, it has been repeatedly pointed out that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Okay, that's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So we know that good works cannot save us. It is only by Christ's gift. God gives this grace to us through faith in His Son. However, that does not mean that good works aren't a necessary part of the Christian life. Because Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared beforehand in order that we may walk in them, right? So again, he did not save us by our works, but he saved us to do good works. And the Bible is very clear that spirit-led Christians can do good works. And the reason I'm saying this is because there's, there's this passage. Um, I should have looked up where it is. I want to say it's Isaiah 66, but I'm not sure that's it. But it's somewhere, somewhere in Isaiah. But it's often taken out of context to downplay the importance of good works. It says, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Are you familiar with that statement? Okay. But in context, the prophet is referring to people who claim to be God's people but have no relationship with him because they're living in continual disobedience. This is clearly not how Christians are to live. We are able to do good works if we're connected to the vine. Jesus said so. If we abide in him, Christ said it in John 15. If we abide in him, we do good works, right? And, and Philippians says that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work according to his purpose. So, so let's choose not to minimize good deeds in Jesus' name because they are important, both for a believer's sanctification and for our witness, Okay? Next, Jesus refers to their toil. This is a really interesting uh, translation because it comes from the Greek word kapos, which, which literally means to cut. Okay, so it, it's, a, it's a reference to their pain in trying to do what's right or, or perhaps as a result of trying to do what's right. And this is one of the signs that Peter refers to that shows a person that they are truly in Christ. It says that they are suffering for him, it says they have ceased from sin. Now, that doesn't mean they never sin again, but it means in the sense that they have chosen Christ over their own flesh. They have rejected sin as their Lord and are following Jesus. And it appears that, that Christianity in Ephesus may have been experiencing some hostility by the time the revelation was written. It probably lends itself to understanding this next phrase, which is patient endurance. Now, this is that Greek word, hupomene, we talked about it. Um, I think it was last week, but it can literally mean cheerful endurance. Do you remember that? Cheerful endurance. It's not just about suffering hardship. It's about doing so with a positive attitude in the midst of great difficulty. Remember how we talked about anybody can suffer, but not anybody, not everyone can suffer well? 
right? I know some of you are personally familiar with, uh, with Bruce and Patty Moore. They used to attend Crossroad. Um, but for those of you that haven't, um, perhaps you've at least prayed for them because they're on the prayer list. But nearly 15 years ago, when I was here the first time, it was a long time ago, uh, Bruce got the news for the first time that he had cancer. I believe he's in his fifth bout at this point. But he told me his first consideration that he mentioned to Patty was, how are we going to glorify God in this? That is exactly the type of attitude that a Christian ought to have toward difficulty. And most of us are not good at this. Most of us are really good at throwing pity parties, right? I'm guilty. One of the most obvious marks of a Christian is a willingness to experience suffering while still upholding the name of Christ. And we're going to get deeper into that a little bit shortly. But, but the following is characteristic of believers that has been all too often forgotten and even rejected by so many so-called Christians. We talked about this morning. This, this is, Christians should have a deep intolerance for evil. We should not tolerate evil. I'm going to ask a quick question. Is anyone in here lactose intolerant? Saw one hand. I knew that hand was going to come up. <laughs> For those of you that aren't aware of what causes lactose intolerance, it's the inability to properly digest lactose, which is the, the sugar that's in milk. And it creates some really terrible gastrointestinal issues. Okay, And as delicious as that ice cream cake might be, if you have a bad lactose intolerance and no pills, it is not worth what's going to happen to you as a result, or to your family, as a result, okay? So if you're wondering where I'm going with this, I promise it'll make sense in a minute. To this church at Ephesus, Jesus commends them because they cannot bear with those who are evil. The Greek says won't bear up. In other words, won't support or accept those who are evil. This is a very important thing to take note of. Because many in the professing church today are exceedingly accepting of evil. In today's text, Christ gives two examples of the kind of evil people that Ephesians wouldn't tolerate. The first one he specifically names are false prophets or false apostles. That's going to be someone who claims that they've been sent by God, who probably says they have a revelation from the Lord, and they really just kind of pulled that out of the air. You know, they, they, it came from their own minds, or, or maybe they received this revelation from a wicked spirit. You know, in, in Scripture, God's people are instructed very clearly how to recognize a false prophet or a false apostle. There's two ways you may have noticed. One of them is from Deuteronomy 18.22. It says, a man who makes a prophecy that does not come true is not from the Lord. Right? It's so obvious. And yet we had so much of that around the last election, if I recall. There was quite a bit of that. But anyway, um, you know, Jesus also said in Matthew 7 that you would know a tree by its fruit. In other words, the person that's a fake would not have godly behavior. Eventually you would see the, the chink in the armor, so to speak. You'd recognize what they really are. The fruit might be pretty on the outside, but then you open it and it's rotten. So the Ephesian church was showing, this is key, guys, discernment. The Ephesian church was showing discernment in how they received or rejected people who claimed to be speaking for God. Now, this, this is actually one of the spiritual gifts that I think we should all pray for. You know, it, 
it, it may not sound like a very important thing to you nowadays because we don't use the word that often. And, and, and now, you know, we have, we have the Bible that we can read if we have questions. But, but due to the amount of biblical illiteracy in the church, this is just as important today as it ever has been. False teachers who have infiltrated the church today teach that God wants you to always and only be healthy and wealthy. If you're not rich, you're not faithful. That's a false teaching. Others insist that you're not saved unless you exercise a specific spiritual gift. That is a false teaching. Christ wants his people to know the authentic truth so well that the counterfeit won't fool us. We need to practice discernment every bit today as, as much as the first century churches did. We need, we need the advantage because it's right here. We need to utilize this advantage that we have of the Word of God at our fingertips. We have it on our phones. We have it online. We have it on our coffee table and on our shelves. We have the Word of God. And that's a wonderful advantage, but we have to read it. We have to internalize it, understand it, in order to be, be able to grasp what these, these first century Christians did. We gotta, we gotta keep the difference between truth and error in our hearts and recognize real biblical doctrine and keep that doctrine pure, especially soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We need to maintain the purity of that. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I forgot it when I was writing this, this sermon, but this morning I was reminded of a, a quote I probably heard from Craig because <laughs> he has a lot of good quotes. Usually it's R.C. Sproul uh, or Alistair Begg. But he said... Um, Discernment is not just knowing the difference between what's right and what's wrong. It's knowing the difference between what's right and what's almost right. I think that's very important for us to note. We need discernment. The Lord continues elaborating on how the Ephesians have patiently endured. He says, I know you're enduring patiently, he says, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, by the last part, he doesn't mean they haven't gotten tired right? That's not what he means when he says you've not grown weary. He's saying you haven't given up. I mean, they are cheerfully enduring hostility from the world for the sake of Jesus' name, despite feeling beat down. In other words, they're standing firm under pressure. And with these things, Christ is pleased. You remember this, this whole paragraph is affirming what they've done in each area mentioned. You know, based on what we're reading, the Christians in this church have actually, they got a whole lot going on for them, don't they? I mean, there's a lot of positivity here. And yet there's something that Jesus warns them about. We're going to keep reading starting in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, on the admonition side, Christ is confronting this church about the fact that they have abandoned the love that they had at first. Now, this is an interesting statement. And, and from the text, I don't, I don't know whether we can actually specifically determine what Christ is referring to, at least not for certain. Commentaries don't agree, I'll tell you that. 
Okay, we don't know exactly what he's talking about, but, but they all seem to have the same flavor. And that's saying that, that this church has lost some of its ardency, some of its, its passion that they had for God and for one another. That's a sad but unfortunately common state of affairs. At certain times throughout history, you know, we've seen the kingdom of God experience powerful movements of the Holy Spirit. We typically refer to them as, as revival, you know. Sometimes they, they almost go nationwide. Sometimes they're a little more localized. But evangelism spreads like wildfire in these times, and there's, there's huge numbers of conversions that occur, and, and then churches get planted, Right? But then after a while, the fervor tends to die down. You know, the people kind of settle into the rhythms of life, and, and worshiping God might go from a moment-by-moment moment thing to something that just happens on Sunday morning once a week. People might maintain good doctrine, and they might generally stay out of trouble, but the fire dwindles, and it becomes less of a front-line exercise in a battle than it does a country club. And this is a grave danger in the church. This describes, I think, a large percentage of the Western church. So the question, how do, how do we change this lackadaisical attitude that we have? How do we deal with this? Christ explains it pretty simply. First, he instructs the church to remember. He says, remember what? Remember the height from which they had fallen. In other words, church, mentally retrace your steps and see where you were when you first learned the truth, when you first banded together with other believers as an outpost against the devil in this world. You know, to the individual Christian, I think this is a good idea as well. How many of us, how many of y'all, I'm going to ask you, how many of y'all have been a Christian for more than a year? Okay, how many of you for more than five years? Yeah, 10 years, 30 years, some of you got 50 years, 100 years, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can you look back at your early life since your conversion and see a change since then? I certainly hope so, in one sense. <laughs> but in another sense, we see a change that maybe we don't like as much. Now, I want to clarify, this is not about always being on a spiritual mountaintop all of the time, right? Because generally speaking, when a person first comes to, to the Lord, their excitement is, is similar to, to the way a person feels who's fallen in love, you know, with the person that's going to one day be their spouse. Their, their, thoughts are, their thoughts are always turned to that person, you know, they want to serve them, they, they're expressing love for them, but then as they grow in their relationship with that person, experiencing some of the struggles of married life and, and some of the wonderful challenges like raising kids, you know, th their feelings may take on a change. Now, in a best-case scenario, they mature in that love. They develop a deeper and more committed love than before, and they, and they show it by treating each other with greater respect and greater self-sacrifice. But in some cases, it goes past familiarity, and it becomes rote. You know, no more date nights, no more communication, no more romance, and, and physical expressions of love become rare or even non-existent. This is wrong. Any married Christian couple should be able to see that that is a sinful state, and they should strive to rekindle that warmth of feeling that they had at the beginning. 
I think it's similar to what was going on at the church in Ephesus. They, they were going through the motions, but they didn't have the love. And so Christ reminded them of what used to be, and then he commands them to repent. Now, what is repentance? We talk about this a lot. The, the word literally means, in Greek, it means change mind. But it also indicates a change in trajectory, okay? Too, too often, I think, we, we, make, we misunderstand what repentance is. Like we think of it as, as an apology, just saying, I'm sorry, right? That is not repentance. You know, saying, God, forgive me for what I'm fitting to do. That is, not, that is prepentance. That is not repentance, okay? That's not a thing, all right? It's not just remorse or, or, or regret because one can experience all of those things without a real change of mind. Big example, Judas, okay? Real repentance results in a change of direction and behavior. And Jesus wants us to remember where we were and repent of where we are. You know, on the road to life, it's hard to find shortcuts that work. You may have noticed this. If you've been around a while, you notice most of the time you can't just trudge through the bushes and find the right path again, right? You got to kind of backtrack, go back to where you deviated, figure that out, and then you get back on the path. And I think that's where some of us need to go. We need to look at where we are and say, you know, we got to go back to where we deviated so we can head the proper direction. You can't just crash through the bushes. Jesus explains that to the church at Ephesus by telling them to return to the love that they had abandoned. And we see his prescription for that. He didn't use the word return, but that's what he says because he tells them that they need to go back to their past works. And I think it's important for us to pay attention here because we need to recognize, listen, what's being implied, okay? Jesus says they had abandoned the love they had at first, right? And then he demands that they return to the works they did at first. So don't miss that connection. Love should result in works, any Christian who claims to love God and love others must show it by their actions. See, Christianity is not just about what we don't do. You know, trying to avoid sins that, that, that we commit, that's only part of it. Trying to, trying to uh, uh, avoid the, the things that we know are wrong, that's good, but that's not all there is. The admonition Jesus gives here is ultimately about an act of omission, the sin of not doing what we're supposed to do. Think about that a moment. You know, the sin Jesus is holding against the Ephesian church here, it wasn't something they were doing. It was something they should have been doing, but they weren't. In a moment, Jesus is going to convey that there will be a reward for those who continue to walk in love and, and follow his instruction. But, but for the church itself, there's also a potential consequence that is quite heartbreaking in its finality. Jesus tells them, unless you repent, what? He says, unless you repent, sorry, your lampstand will be removed. Now, what does that mean? I want to be clear here. I don't think Jesus is telling the individual 
Christians at Ephesus who, who, who are already saved believers. I don't think he's telling them, you're going to lose your salvation if you don't get your act together as a church. Because Jesus himself indicated these lampstands represent the seven churches. And so it follows to me that what he's saying is failure to heed his word could result in the disillusion of the church. It could dissolve. It could fall apart. Its witness could be lost in its generation. And I think that this happens today as well. There are a lot of of well-meaning congregations with a lot of faithful believers in them that collapse and they fail because they quench the Holy Spirit's fire rather than fanning it into a blaze. I do not want to see that happen here. Fan the Holy Spirit into a blaze, friends, in your lives, in your marriage, in the way that you raise your children, in this church body, in the worship services here, fan the flame. Last couple of verses. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, we're going to break this down. First of all, who are the, 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 the Nicolaitans? I don't know. <laughs> the commentaries don't really know either, huh? But that is one of the, that's one of the theories. Um, there's a, we're going to just, some believe that they were a sect, right, that was started by uh, one of the original seven deacons of the Jerusalem church. One of the guys, his name was Nicholas, uh, him becoming a heretic, um, I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation, but it's not really important where they came from. The point is they were a group of people that arose. This is the important part. They arose from within the church, okay? From within the church that practiced immorality and tried to pass it off as acceptable to God. Now, interestingly, this this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said was going to happen. You guys remember when he visited the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20? I know it's been like a year since we were there, but he told them some of their very own number would arise from among them and begin teaching twisted things. He said leading some of the disciples to follow after them. Does that sound familiar? How many of us in this room have been discouraged by the number of professing Christians who joined the deconstruction trend and wandered away from the church? They've wandered from the faith. Or who claim to be men of God, but who preach the acceptance of perverse and immoral lifestyles as though they were acceptable to the Lord. How many of you have driven past a church with a rainbow flag on a pole? That should never be. Never. These are the Nicolaitans of our day. But as Isaiah the prophet says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet 
for bitter. That's Isaiah 5.20. These people are heaping judgment upon themselves and we should stay clear. I mean, think about that. Just like you shouldn't stand near a tall tree in a lightning storm. You don't want to get burned by the hellfire that follows false teachers. The safest way to guard your heart and protect your faith is to hate that which God hates and love that which God loves. Romans 12, 9 says we should, I love this, cling, cling to what is good. But what should we do with that which is evil? What? Throw it away. Detest. Treat it as repulsive. Yes. We should cast it aside. I think sometimes we try to cling to our evil instead. We should throw it away. And like we talked about last week, you know, through John's eyes, we've seen Jesus in his glory. Do you want to be on his bad side? Because I don't. Last couple of things. Okay, uh, the consequence of having one's lampstand removed is dire but it's also counterbalanced by this wonderful promise that those who conquer can eat of the tree of life. It's in the garden of God. I think that's awesome. You know, this, the same Jesus standing before John with eyes of flame was also the word became flesh who was nailed to a Roman cross to pay the price for the sins of mankind. And then the spirit of life raised him from the grave and, and now he rules forever. In this kingdom that we're going to get to share with him as long as we remain in him. But we must not ignore the warnings that are in this book, friends. God is clear. In fact, let's not, let's not forget what it means when Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because see, the, the last line of verse 7, which is repeated over and over throughout the letters of the churches. That proves the audience is not merely the church at Ephesus. It is all of us. Anyone who has ears to hear should pay attention to what the Spirit says. That means every church from the first century until the last century of human existence ought to pay attention to the words of Christ right here. We should let them sink deep into our minds and into our hearts, and we should trust Him who is faithful and true. Because it is the people that make up the church. We are the church. We comprise the lampstand for the time being that is Crossroad Christian Church. And with the recent loss of our dear brother Dave and sister Mary, we, we have some big shoes to fill in different areas of service to, to, to the least and to outreach to the lost. And I hope each of you will continue to strive to love God and love others as we try to, to return to the love and the works that we did at first. This church is made up of individuals. And each individual here has gifts. And God wants to use them for his glory. 